walking after midnight out in the moonlight just like we used to do i'm always walking after midnight searching for you i walk for miles along the highway that was that's of course patty uh, klein at the time she had no no Fitbit. No Fitbit. Um, <laughs> if I seem a, little, seem a little distracted, our first guest on today's show is sort of not available on the Zoom yet, which is fine. I have plenty to say to you, including today's show is about walking. Uh, and um, one of the things that I've done, because I was inspired by the fact that today's show is about walking and all the benefits of walking, not only to one's health, but sort of civic benefits, is I signed up for a charity walk. Uh, this is the ACT, A-C-T, 5K Walk for AIDS Services and Overdose Prevention. If you're listening here on Friday, it's tomorrow, Saturday, November 4th. Uh, and if you can find <laughs> this charity, which I've been involved with for decades, I'm just going to say, I think it has like the worst SEO uh, search engine optimization that I've, I just like, it's really hard to find. And, and even those of us who've been involved with it for a really long time, don't know how to say the email, the uh, URL address of it, and when we do say it, it it's not one that you would really easily write down. Uh, but as we go along today, uh, well, I, I can give it, to, give it to you right now. I mean, good luck with this. So it's www, you know, the way addresses tend to be, uh, .aids-ct.org. So www.aids-ct.org. And you can learn more about it. But I also, I need more team members. Right now, my dog Declan and I are the only two people uh, on Team Tapir, uh, and I would like you to sign up for it. And I wouldn't have done this. Um, I mean, I wouldn't even have signed up for this if it were not for this show, and maybe if it were not for our first guest, who I believe is here right now. Jeff Speck is a city planner and author of the book Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. He is kind of the go-to guy about walkability. Uh, I don't think there's anything I could throw at him that he wouldn't have an answer to. Assuming he's actually on the Zoom right now. Jeff Speck, are you there? I am here, and I <clears throat> I hope to have answers for you. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm so incredibly excited. So, I mean, we should just talk about what walkability means in your context. I think most of us think, well, how much I walk or how much I don't walk or how fast I, or slow I walk is determined by me. Do I have the energy? Do I feel like doing that? That it's it's almost entirely driven by the individual person. And the, envi- the, the argument you're making is, well, that's certainly part of it, but environment plays an incredible role. So just give us kind of a thumbnail on that. Well, you've actually set me up nicely because I guess how fast you walk may be a function of your individual qualities, mm-hmm. but uh, some uh, scientists did a study and found actually how fast you walk is probably a function of how large your city is. They mapped cities uh, all over the planet and found that walk speed is um, correlates quite clean, cleanly with city size. So <laughs> if that explains why some of us get to go to New York and people try to push through us <laughs> on the sidewalk, <laughs> uh, uh, that's why. Um so I'm a city planner, and I focus on walkability as a path to understanding cities better and to planning cities better. And, um, you know, what I did perhaps 20 years ago with my colleagues might just have been called best practices in city planning. 
Um, but that didn't win many converts to what we were trying to do, which was to make our cities more successful and more livable. Um, and over those couple decades, I came to realize that the best way to understand good city planning and the best way to practice good city planning, and most importantly, to communicate good city planning, was to frame it through the window of walkability. So I reoriented my, my practice and uh, my writings, and uh, you know, my best-known book is called Walkable City, uh, around communicating good city planning through um, making the places we live more walkable and making new places that are um, as walkable as possible, particularly in the context of you know the American scene in which for about 70 years now we've been designing around the automobile as the um, you know the citizen of our environment as opposed to the human. I don't think it's just seven years. I mean, 70, 70, 70 years. Thank you. 70 years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I where I live, um, not too far from where I live, is uh, an area called Route 44. It goes through what were formerly some very beautiful rural towns. The entire thing is designed as if its goal was to make cars happy. Um, <laughs> there's like no indication that human beings played any role in the consideration uh, of how this was set up. But I want to want you to give us a um, kind of a recent and real life and very interesting example. Okay, so pandemic starts 2021. Um, people start getting really nervous about cities. Cities are maybe not a great place uh, to be. You're just too close to other people. Uh, maybe you ought to get out of the city, go move to a suburb. Uh, and a lot of people did that. And there's an irony there, right? Because it, it turned out, well, you explain what the irony is. Well, it sounds like you've read the, the 10th anniversary update to my book, which yes, came out a year ago, where I added about 100 pages based on things we'd experienced in the last decade. Um, one of those was the misunderstanding that I think a, a lot of people still share that um, uh, you were you were more likely to survive COVID if you got out of the city or perhaps less likely to get it. Um, we've now had the opportunity to see all the data and it made it very clear you were no more likely to get or not get COVID if you were in a urban, rural or suburban environment, but you were considerably more likely to survive COVID if you were with an urban environment. And I was and I was curious about that and I looked into it and I thought, okay, maybe because people are wealthier in urban environments, but that was actually zeroed out of the study. Um, I said, okay, better hospitals in urban environments. That was also zeroed out of the study. And what, what the doctors said, it's almost like I had written it for them. Uh, they couldn't have done it any better. They said, um, the reason why people survived COVID better in more urban areas is that people in urban areas are actually healthier and in better shape because urban areas cause them to walk more. And the people who walk and take transit are considerably healthier than people who drive. Um, and so if you move out of a walking and transit environment to a, um, a more rural or, or suburban environment, you're going to become the kind of person over the years who will be less likely to survive COVID. <laughs> yeah, so it couldn't have been more counterproductive to move out of the city uh, to someplace less walkable. Um, yeah, there's so much stuff that um, I have to say getting ready for this conversation my mind was blown repeatedly by all kinds of things. I'm going to have you – this is an apropos of nothing that we've said so far, and it's only kind of connected to walkability. No, it's very connected to walkability. But this whole thing that you, you have about uh, in cities, the uh, desirability of replacing traffic signals with mm. full, full stop signs – Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that that would, in fact, does, in fact, lower pedestrian fatalities from car accidents and lowers the rate of car accidents themselves. I, once again, I think that's like a counterintuitive thing for people. I think people probably think the opposite. So 
but once you explain it, it, it's obviously true. Anyway, go ahead and explain it. Make it obviously true. Well, there's there's so many counterintuitive things. That, and one of the reasons I love doing what I do is discovering those surprises and then convincing other folks of them. You know, like the fact that adding lanes to a highway makes traffic worse. That mm -hmm. takes a while for people to understand. That's that's a fact mm -hmm. as well. When you remove the center line from a street, people drive seven miles an hour slower. We could talk about why that happens. Um, but it all plays into the same psychology as the situation with stop signs, which is something we do um, almost always when we're doing a downtown plan is we do a signal audit and we try to remove signals and replace them with stop signs wherever possible because there are about half as many crashes at a stop sign controlled intersection as there are at signalized intersections. And more importantly, there's more than two thirds fewer serious pedestrian injuries when you replace signals with stop signs. But if you think about it, I don't find that one's particularly counterintuitive because if you think about your experience as a driver, when the light is yellow, you speed up, right? When the intersection is signalized, that means that half the time, roughly, you're given free reign to speed through that intersection, right? To take that intersection at speed. What's great about always stop signs and people complain, oh, no one's really stopping, right? People are just, are just, are just uh, you know, slinking through. They're not coming to a full stop. That doesn't really matter. What matters is that no one except the most, you know, brazen scofflaw is going through that intersection at speed. Yeah. Right. Very few people see a stop sign and plow through it, mostly because they don't want to get hit. Right. Right. So when you replace signals with stop signs, you create a driver behavior, which is much more conscious, much more uh, um, aware of what's going on around them. Uh, you know, as a pedestrian, you're going to get eye contact probably from drivers if you're if you're in the intersection. You know, as a cyclist, you can probably just blow through it, yeah. <laughs> which we can talk about whether that's good or not. I can say one of the only crashes I've I've almost had on my bicycle was blowing through a stop sign in Washington D.C. when another bicyclist was blowing through in the other ah, direction. Yeah. So yeah, um, I think this is really it's a great point though that when you're driving and when you're driving towards a signal, your goal is not to stop. I mean, I, I as a driver, I'm driving towards the signal. My goal is not to stop. So I either want to go a little faster so I get there while it's still green or go. I mean, there's that famous uh, line in the movie Starman. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Jeff Bridges plays a guy from outer space and he's driving a car for the first time. And Karen Allen asked him if he understands the signals. And he, he said, yes, I have watched you. Red is stop. Go uh, green is go and yellow is go very fast. Um, <laughs> I don't. I didn't. I, I've seen that movie, but I don't remember. Yeah, that no. and so yeah, so I mean, there's nothing about. There's no real incentive. The way that we understand signals to go slower or slow down or anything like that. Your goal is to not be stuck by it. And and the other point, I'm not sure if you you've conveyed this yet, is the reality is you you and your car will get where you're going sooner uh, if there are stop signs instead of signals because there's less kind of effectively lost time. Yeah, I mean, think about all the time you spend just sitting at signals, in fact, when there aren't cars going uh, in the crossing direction, right? There's a lot of time is way, it's, it's basically, you know, we made this investment in asphalt and it's not being used the whole time you sit there the other uh, direction, you know, at 90 degrees has cleared and you're still waiting for the signal to change. The fact that we spend a lot of time waiting at signals means that when you replace 
signals with stop signs, you tend to get through the downtown area faster. Mm. You're not going faster and you're driving much more safely, but your end-to-end elapsed time can be considerably less. And so the subtext of this, the, what makes it even more relevant to us, I mean, the, the benefits of walkability and of walking uh, are off the charts. I mean, the health benefits are off the charts. In, in, I mean, it's not just COVID. There's all kinds of other things that you're less likely to die from uh, if you're walking regularly, walking kind of a lot. Uh, mm. But it's also like lower crime, lower divorce, higher employment rates, all, all kinds of stuff for communities. Uh, it, it's really good. The the only thing getting in the way of this is that it seems as though pedestrian deaths from car accidents uh, are, if anything, on the rise. Can you say a little bit about what you, what you know about that? Yeah. So since 2009, we've had an 82% increase in pedestrian deaths in this country. It's, it's a real epidemic. Um, we use that number to call people's attention to the fact that we need to make changes. The principal causes of those, you know, people used to say cell phones. It's not cell phones. They have cell phones in Europe and they don't, uh, you know, death rates for pedestrians are declining in Europe. It's principally uh, two things, the suburbanization of poverty and the introduction of large trucks and SUVs. So the first item is just the fact that you know, the poor people used to, in the U.S., the, the, the rich fled the cities, right, in the mid-20th century, and the, leaving the poor people there. But that that um, arithmetic has changed. And now uh, poor people are living further and further away from the city center. Many folks are living car-free, not by choice, in environments that were built around the assumption that no one would ever walk or bike anywhere. And they're, you know, they're half a mile between crosswalks and they're let off from their bus stop. Uh, to get across the street to an apartment cluster that's there's no crosswalk in front of them. That circumstance and others like it is causing a lot more um, uh, death in the suburbs. And of course, in every city, the suburbs are much more deadly um, for pedestrians than the city centers themselves. Um, secondly, unlike Europe and much of the world, except for North America, um, the typical vehicle in the U.S. used to be a low hooded, relatively lightweight sedan. And now it's a high hooded, relatively heavy SUV, which is about four times as likely to kill you as a small car. Um, And of course, uh, if you're hit by a SUV, you end up under the vehicle, you don't end up on the hood. Um, It's just a real problem. And you know, it's this arms race. Um, People get bigger cars, just not get hit by the big cars. Um, And and the federal government has been, in fact, uh, the villain in this uh, story. Uh, creating these perhaps unintentional, but I think more like, um, you know, end run, uh, end runs accomplished by the the auto manufacturers to find a way to change the rules so that their fuel efficiency standards did not include light trucks and then manufacturing much more profitable light trucks than, than sedans. So that now that's the typical vehicle on the streets. Um, it's a problem. My My approach is to say, look, both these things we need to work to fix. And uh, that's going to be a long-term effort that we need to make. But in the short term, we can make a huge difference simply by making our streets safer in some of the ways we've started to discuss, like replacing signals with stop signs and otherwise um, you know, calming the traffic in our communities. All right. So before we run out of time, there's some stuff I really want to delve into because I think you're just so good on it. And one of them is the connection between walking and human intelligence, walking and thinking. I, I, I can just tell you anecdotally that 
if I'm having a little trouble getting ready for a show and I am A, anxious about it and B, not quite sure what am I going to do, what am I going to ask this guy Jeff Speck, if I can squeeze a walk in before that, you know, if I can squeeze in uh, a walk, it makes an incredible difference, just kind of a sorting out of things. And, of course, there's this incredible tradition of this. Uh, uh, Immanuel Kant took the exact same walk every day in Konigsberg. The villagers supposedly could set their watch by his his progress through the city. He did everything at the same time. Nietzsche, Nietzsche is this incredible walker. I mean, he's much more indefatigable and into, you know, steep climbs and stuff like that. But it's sort of everybody. I, I discovered this book called, I think it's called Night Walking. It's by a guy named Beaumont, where it's, it's just a chronicle of all the intellectuals who walked at night in London. It's Chaucer. It's a who's who. It's Chaucer. It's Shakespeare. Uh, it's Blake. But it's especially Dickens, who's apparently some kind of super walker. And that's another part of this, too. I mean, the human intelligence part I'd love for you to talk about, but also the idea that if you can get a walking culture going kind of 24-7 in a city, a whole bunch of other things get better, too. Yeah, I don't think we fully understand all the benefits of walking. Uh, another, uh, you know, you, you've mentioned a number of of uh, folks who I mentioned in in the book Walkable City. Um, there's also a, I'm going to get this wrong because it's quite complex, but there's also a scientist who studies uh, mobility and thought patterns in in various animals, including mice and rats. And he finds that they get smarter when they're able to negotiate their own way around a maze. Um, but if you move them around the maze without them actually being self-mobile, they get dumber. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, more, I don't know, that's like being a passenger in a car. Um, but that people are beginning to understand that the brain and the body are connected in ways that thinking is as much a kinetic activity as it is a you know an internal activity. And it's by thinking as we move and as we make ourselves move that we are able to have our most, uh, um, you know, effective uh, type of thoughts. But obviously, that's just one of of so many different benefits. Um, you know, the the what's fun for me as someone who's advocating for walking from a city planning perspective is, is to see all these other folks from other disciplines who are gradually reaching the same conclusions um, that we have about, for example, you know, social scientists telling us, oh, your degree of participation in, in social activities in your community is going to be a function of, of, of how walkable your community is. <laughs> like, okay, that's great. You know, or Robin, Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone, yeah. telling us that, that there's no other factor that's going to determine um, your uh, participation in social activities than how long your commute is, that being an inverse proportion, of course. And that's just common sense, right? Because there's only, only so many hours in the day. But um, but it's, it's also it's, but it's also hold on to your favorite. It's also yeah. common sense that you're not going to strike up a conversation very often, at least not a pleasant conversation, to somebody who's in the lane next to you through your open car windows. Uh, I mean, well, I, I always you know I always say how many times have you flipped someone the bird while while walking? <laughs> yeah, right? Or that's or the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's very different to bump into someone when you're when you're walking than when you're driving. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, my favorite. Uh, experiment was uh, on the health side was in China, in Beijing, they oh, have yeah. a lottery mm -hmm. that determines whether you get the right to own a car or not. So it's completely random who gets to own a car and who doesn't. And then they tracked the health outcomes of the folks who won the lottery versus those who, who lost the lottery and couldn't get a car. And the ones who won the car, if they were over 50, uh, who won the right to purchase the car, um, within a few years, they were 22 pounds heavier. 
than the ones who had lost the lottery. So there's a very simple randomized experiment around health and, and driving. But I, I also feel as though we are kind of homo automobilis in, in our attitudes <laughs> about stuff. And there's almost a sense that people who are walking are, they're kind of the last on the pecking order or something, uh, in, rather than setting up an environment that encourages walking, that fosters walking, that attracts people who like to walk and, and celebrates that. I mean, we really do design environments that make cars happy and, and that are are particularly designed for you to be able to pull into a parking lot, pay no money for it, get out of the car, do your thing, get right back in the car. Uh, the car barely cools off at all. Uh, and and I don't know how we turn that around. I, I think businesses think, if I can get the car there, I can get the person. Uh, and it, it, I think it's it's a mentality that's very, very sticky and hard to get rid of. Well, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, Colin, and, and I've seen a complete turnaround in terms of what cities and, and developer clients are asking me for. So, um, uh, you know, for someone who were just arrive in the U.S. and observe our circumstances now, they might say, um, wow, you know, this is a car culture. But if you look at um, what cities are asking for, the sort of planning that um, cities are now doing, cities like Minneapolis and Seattle getting rid of their parking requirements, for example, for new development downtown, um, and, uh, you know, city after city asking us and our colleagues in to say, hey, how can we have a safer place? Um, you know, I'm very optimistic. Yeah. I think things are going to get a lot better pretty soon. And another thing that they're doing um, is, I mean, for example, Burlington, Vermont was one of the early places to do it, creating pedestrian malls, just shutting off streets permanently, making it a pedestrian mall. Uh, you live near Boston. I know Newbury Street. I think it's just on Sundays uh, is the same thing. It's cordoned off only, only pedestrians. That kind of stuff seems to me very helpful and also very uh, a very characteristic of why a city is lively and fun and exciting because you can walk around from place to base. Place you can be a flaneur like Baudelaire, not really knowing where you're going and just discovering things as you walk. Yeah, I think uh, you know in Boston they only they only close Newberry Street on occasion. They need to close Newberry Street all the time. That's one one street in Boston we've identified that we think would thrive wonderfully as a strictly pedestrian street. We do have an area called Downtown Crossing, you may know, near the Boston Common that has become pretty much um, pedestrian only. It's doing great. Um, a lot of the streets that were pedestrianized in the 60s and 70s, in fact, most of them failed for reasons that we can discuss. Um, the lesson there is, isn't that you shouldn't do it, but do what Jeanette Sadiq Khan did in New York City with Times Square. And what we do when we recommend pedestrianization in a city is to try it out, right? Mm -hmm. as, you, as you mentioned, try it on a Sunday. Yeah. If that works, add Saturday. If that works, do it for a week um, and, and just see what, see what uh, you know, what benefits the merchants best. Um, Burlington, Vermont is a wonderful example of many college towns and resort towns that have mm -hmm. successfully pedestrianized Main Street areas. We also find that it works quite well in very dense places, like in New York City, like um, uh, in Denver, Colorado, where there's a lot of buildings surrounding. I believe it's the 16th Street. They call it a bus mall, but it's really a pedestrian mall. Um, that is an important trend, but I think that in most American cities, the lifeblood is still cars moving slowly through mm -hmm. those streets, and we we uh, think we can get a lot done simply by creating physical conditions that give pedestrians and cyclists a fighting chance as opposed to perhaps 
uh, removing all cars immediately from <laughs> from downtowns. So also, it's very hard to do. <laughs> so, Jeff Speck, I'm under orders from the producer McCusker to wrap up this conversation. We've got another guest coming along, but this is fascinating. I would talk to you anytime. Uh, Jeff Speck is a city planner and author of the book Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America, One Step at a Time. Even if you get the original copy, you have to get the new one now with uh, all the updates. As we head into the uh, end of this segment and to the song we're going to uh, go out with, I want to just call your attention to somebody I learned about uh, today getting ready for this show. Uh, it turns out that uh, in the early 19th century, uh, there there was something called pedestrianism, where it was sort of walking as a spectator sport. Uh, and there was a guy named George Wilson, who in September of 1815, he was uh, 50 years old. Uh, he said he was going to do a 1,000-mile walk, but it was just going to be around a public grasslands area outside of Greenwich. And this created such a stir, stir that by the time he'd walked 750 miles, the crowds watching him were too big to control and too unruly. And he got arrested for walking. And he wasn't even walking in any particularly disorderly way, but it just had created too much of a mob scene just to go there and watch George Wilson walk. 751.25 miles, I think, is what he had done by the time he arrested. Uh, he got arrested. So uh, a little bit more than this song. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a second. Well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I haver, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's havering to you. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles to fall down at your door. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. in silent desperation Keeping an eye on the Holy Land A hypothetical destination Say, who is this walking man? Sorry, James, got to fade you down right now. Uh, I'm very excited about this segment, too. But the minute that McCusker said she wanted to do a show about walking, uh, I said, well, gait analysis. I've been reading for a long time. <laughs> uh, Liam Satchel is here. He's going to explain what a gait analysis is. But I just want to say that intelligence experts have been obsessively interested 
in the way that Vladimir Putin walks. And there have just been multiple analyses of this and different theories about what causes it. And it's all part of this really fascinating thing called gait analysis. Uh, Liam Satchel is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Winchester uh, and joins us now. Welcome to our conversation. Hi, good to be here. So maybe, first of all, just let's define the term gate. We should say G-A-I-T, that kind of gate analysis. Explain what that means. So gate analysis has got a couple of definitions, uh, but the main way to think about it is effectively the mathematical study of movement or the angles between different parts of your body as you're walking, how they relate to each other and the overall mathematical space that you take up as you travel while you walk. So even though that can be analyzed mathematically, there's probably a lot that we do heuristically or instinctively. And, and I know one of the things that got you interested in this uh, is what makes people feel safe or unsafe at night, and, and particularly as regards a figure who might be um, venturing down towards towards you on the street. And, and so we are, maybe without even realizing it, noticing how that person walks. Yeah. Walking and gait and the self is pretty interesting because it's interesting for two reasons, right? First of all, how we walk isn't something we spend a lot of time thinking about, right? We don't spend a lot of time thinking about how we're moving through space and how we're traveling. And, you know, people like Jeff spend a lot of time designing spaces for us to travel through rather than us thinking about it. So the automaticity of walking is really interesting from that. The other side is the gait and when we see someone walking has an inherent social value. When you see someone at a distance, you try and figure them out. You're like, oh, are they going to be a threat to me? Are they a friend to me? And on some levels, sometimes you'll see someone and it just won't feel right. But all you can see is that person late at night in the distance, walking in the dark. And that movement is giving you that sense of discomfort or unsure. And yeah, we think we think and maybe we can uh, judge that person's personality at least partly, by the way that they walk. Um, and, and there is some some scholarship and research on about how good people are at that. Explain, in fact, how effective we are at, at judging a personality. Surprisingly good at this. So when I first started doing all this sort of research, it was semi from a scientifically skeptical position, right? You often, we are really aware that we shouldn't be so biased in our judgments of unknown people. But we did a fair few studies where we presented people, even with dotted silhouetted outlines of people, and we said, do you think this person is aggressive? Do you think they're curious? Do you think they've got a criminal conviction? And people are pretty good at identifying who is more or less aggressive in an environment like that, or looking at a single person and say, they look quite aggressive. And then that's backed up by features of that silhouetted person that we previously recorded. There is something we're quite good at. How we're doing that, we're not entirely clear about. But when we see someone at a distance, we've got a pretty good threat radar on them. So uh, you may throw some of this out as snake oil, uh, <laughs> but I want to bring it up anyway. So it's increasingly being used as a kind of biometric gate analysis. For example, uh, somebody planted pipe bombs at, during January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, uh, and there's video of that person, but no idea of the person. Investigators have done things, including gate analysis, as if this was almost like a fingerprint. They can see the person walking. Uh, are, are there things that they can learn about the person or maybe be able to identify the person sheerly through gate? Uh, there's a lot of black mirror type stuff that that seems to surround gate analysis these days. Uh, and people are sort of claiming they can detect the body double of a world leader because the other person doesn't walk the right way. How much, if any of that, would be valid? Right. This is um, something that's particularly interesting in legal circles. Um, I've done work in the UK with forensic podiatrists. 
whose job it is to look and try and match whether someone in a piece of footage we've got matches other known footage of that person walking and you try and line it up. In that context, forensic gate analysis is quite difficult. You've got typically grainy footage or unclear footage or footage from one particular angle and then footage from another place, another time, another moment. And you're just trying to, by eye, get a sense of whether or not those two things line up. And when I said before, there's a couple of ways of doing gate analysis. The kind of analysis that most people do in these security settings or with intelligence officers is by eye. It's mm -hmm. looking at someone and trying to have the best bet that those movements line up. And whilst movement is unique, there's loads of tiny ways it can be different or vary at different times. When we're doing the stuff in the lab and we have our infrared cameras and our motion capture, and we're talking about degrees of angles of movement, that's a really highly studied environment where we have very specific cameras to try and capture that. So when you're doing forensic gate analysis in the wild and you're trying to match someone to reference footage, you've got some significant challenges to try and match whether or not you think that person is the person in the reference footage. And there's some evidence this works. There's also some evidence it has challenges. And we've written to judges in the UK before and had discussions with them about how scientific that approach can actually be when you have that lower quality or unusual angle film. There is this thing, at least here in the U.S., it seems like a very U.S. term, called gunslinger's gate. And, and the whole idea is that you, right. one of your arms moves and the other, other arm seems almost frozen at the side. And it seems to be your dominant hand that's frozen. And this is something they have, they claim to have noticed this about Putin. I've read about eight different interpretations <laughs> about what that could possibly mean. There is a certain amount of rubbish that can creep into this, right? There's a, a kind of a, a black mirror quality to it. But just say a little bit about what you think about things like that. Yeah. So one of the strange things that people are very keen to do, and it, newspapers love this, the idea of body language experts, right? And people who can watch footage and they got years of experience of watching people and they come to these conclusions about someone's behavior. But by and large, with all this sort of stuff, there's very little science into what is good and effective body language, or what body language is trying to communicate. Some of the stuff you mentioned there with like that gunslinger gate will be sort of acquired patterns and acquired skills of specific people. So maybe there's something in that. I've never seen much data on that as a research topic. And as for people who might have sort of uh, pathological or health reasons for changing their gait, there's some research out on that. But that research usually focuses on those populations of people who have those health issues to begin with. And that's not the same thing as looking in an everyday context or looking at a piece of footage of even a world leader and saying, because they are doing that, that means they probably have a health issue. We don't have enough studies of the general population. We don't have enough science of general people's body language to start identifying people from the public with specific types of behavior or specific illnesses. It's more that we tend to do that in clinical settings. So it's perhaps premature, albeit media exciting, to kind of make those sorts of loop, leaps in day-to-day -day basis. Right. No, I, my favorite one was that Putin seems to lack what is called a contralateral movement and instead tends to move in a head-to-tail pattern like a fish or a reptile. <laughs> as attractive as that is to me uh, to think about, it didn't seem like it had a lot. Hey, before we run out of time, and we're about to, uh, this isn't exactly your specialty, but I'm, I know you'll have something to say about it because you've kind of just alluded to it. I've, I've often been told I walk the wrong way, um, particularly if I'm mm. having some kind of problem. But I feel that you know, without some real pressing thing that causes a limp or something, one's gait feels kind of ineradicable. I, I just I, I think it's pretty hard to change the way that you walk just because maybe you think you should. Do you have a sense of how indelible our normal gait tends to be? 
this is a really interesting point and it's like a lot of human behavior in general is that unless it's acted on an outside force most of the things we do are pretty consistent mm-hmm. we like to have you know the similar food similar routines and walking is one of the most automatic things that we can do so generally by large your walk doesn't change throughout your life you're consistent unless something changes it or for a health reason it does change um but the reasons for this are still not massively understood why is this so automatic why is it not something we can pay that much attention to we need a lot more research to understand that but walking the wrong way is a, it's definitely a very personal judgment that someone must have made at one point in time and i definitely wouldn't say there's data on the right kind of walk in that sense <laughs> every physical therapist who's ever looked at me has told me that uh all right liam satchel this is fascinating stuff thank you so much for your time senior lecturer in psychology at the university of winchester and an expert on uh, gate biomechanics we have to take a little break here we have one more story to tell you about walking it's about that whole big 10,000 step idea which also turns out to be kind of we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Make sure you never miss The Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Tim Rasmussen, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. Before we uh, get into our final segment here, I have to say some thank yous, uh, starting with Kat Pastor and Gina Matruda, both of whom are technical producers on this show. Uh, this episode was produced by McCusker, the famous and enigmatic McCusker. Um, before we begin, I want to tell a quick story. <laughs> so in 2009, I flew to Japan. Uh, and uh, when you fly that distance, you just kind of get disoriented and, and you, you come and I, I met my hosts um, and they had a little dinner for me and um, you gave me some things and familiarized me with my surroundings a little bit. And I had a couple of glasses of wine and I went to bed. Oh, the other part of this I have to tell you is that Japan was in the middle of a very legitimate public health concern about swine flu. So our plane was stopped on the tarmac and boarded by people in hazmat suits who took our temperatures uh, with those, those, you know, touchless thermometers and stuff. And everybody was very worried about swine flu. So I got up the next morning, I looked at my suitcase, and there was this odd little device in there. And 
<laughs> I, I decided that uh, the Japanese government must have decided to track all of us who were landing there and might be bringing swine flu in with us. And I went down to my hosts and I said, I think, I think they put something inside my suitcase. And my uh, host said, no, that's a pedometer. I gave it to you last night. You just don't remember anything that happened last night. Um, and, and that is true. And I thought of it because pedometers and, in fact, Japan are, are going to be part of the conversation we have right now. The conversation is kind of about how you know whether you're walking enough. If we can grant the, the premise, which I think most people can, that walking is good for you, how much walking do you need? Here to help us understand that is Dr. Ayman Lee, uh, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, welcome to our show and our conversation. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be on your show and look forward to chatting to you about steps. So I, I had, a, I've had, I owned actually several Fitbits in the course of my life. I'm currently not Fitbit it, but uh, I have. And there's that magic number of 10,000 steps. And I think you were one of the people who figured out that that 10,000 step goal doesn't come from a lot of health studies and medical studies. It actually comes from a very odd source. I explain that to the audience. So I love your story about Japan because this is actually where it all started. Mm -hmm. So my introduction to this area was my institution, of course, like many institutions, promotes health. And around 2018, um, they asked us to form teams, you know, so you compete against each other and the group that has the most number of steps wins. And so they gave us little gadgets to track our steps. And I was on a team together with a bunch of, you know, older, middle-aged women. And I realized that for many of them, getting any number of steps is quite a challenge, let alone 10,000 steps, which is the default step goal you have if you look at many of your gadgets. So that made me question, you know, why 10,000 steps? And I started a study that showed good for us. We don't really need 10,000 steps to benefit our health. But how does this 10,000 number come about? So as you said, the Japanese are the people who invented the pedometer way back when, you know, probably in the 1960s. And the gentleman who was very heavily involved in this, Dr. Hatano, had thought about, well, if we have a pedometer, we should put a number there so that people have an idea of what they're trying to achieve. And he came up with the number 10,000 because in Japanese, you know, we have one, ten, a thousand and they have a word for 10,000, so it's not 10, 1,000, but a single word for 10,000. And that word is actually very like the Chinese word for 10,000 also is man. And the Japanese character for man looks like a person walking, at least according to Dr. Hatano. And if you look at it and, you know, play around with the graphics, it does look like a man walking. And so he figured that a good name to give this beta would be Man bokeh, which is the 10,000 step meter. So this is how the figure actually originated. It wasn't based in science. It was based on a good number, a good marketing tool, and number that all of us remember. So if you can get this 10,000 steps, fantastic. But as I said, it's pretty discouraging for a lot of people. And the good news is the research that I, my colleagues, and many others have done have now increasingly suggested that we don't need this 10,000 steps. You know, the more steps you get, the better off you are, but you do not need 10,000 to be healthy. Yeah, in my case, I have a walking motivation coach. His name is Declan. He's a 70-pound poodle. He thinks I should be walking all the time with him. Uh, anything less than all the time is kind of a failure. But for most of us, 
that's not really true. And as as you studied this, as I understand uh, what you found, the benefits to walking start at a much lower step count than 10,000. Tell us more about that. So even at the very low end of step counts, you start seeing health benefits. And then this tapers off at a certain point as far as death rates are concerned. And where the tapering is, is for older women, older women meaning those who are 60 years and older, it tapers off at the 7,000 mark. And for younger individuals, it tapers off around the 9,000 mark. So what, what does it mean for most people? So I like to think of it as it depends on who you are, because all of us are different. We approach life in different ways. We're active in different ways. So for someone who is really doing not very much, rather than trying to get a step goal, which might be difficult for the person because the baseline level could be very low, I like to say, try to get a few more steps a day. And by a few more, can you get 2,000 more steps per day? So 2,000 steps very approximately is equivalent to walking a mile for most people. And, you know, you might think, oh, gosh, that's a lot. But remember, when we count our steps with any of these devices, we count all steps. It's not steps only that you take when you intentionally go out for a walk. So let's say you get up in the morning, you put on your step counter, you go to the bathroom, brush your teeth. You might already have taken 10 steps. That counts. You go downstairs, you make a coffee. That might be another 50 steps. That counts. You go take a shower. That's an initial 10 steps. That counts. So all these steps add. So to get that additional 2,000 may not be that difficult for this person. And once this person starts getting comfortable and thinks, gosh, I can do it. You know, it's really not that hard to step a little bit more. Then I go to the 7,000 goal for older individuals and 9,000 goal for younger individuals. Yeah, it is interesting that the distinction that you make that I think is a really important one, or maybe the lack of a distinction between steps taken for exercise and steps taken in the normal course of life. It makes me feel much better about the fact that right before talking to you, I climbed two flights of stairs to get a slice of pizza. I probably didn't wipe out the slice of pizza with the two flights of stairs, but it did something. I also remember decades ago, uh, I think it might have been 60 Minutes, somebody like that did a thing where they took a guy named Mercury Morris, who was an NFL wide receiver, just a guy in tremendous shape and very fast and a great runner. And they had him mirror what a toddler does uh, and, you know, maybe a three-year-old, four-year-old, something like that. I don't think he made it through half a day. You, the little kids just move around a lot all the time and moving around all the time is really exhausting, uh, even if you're not doing it as part of some kind of exercise regime. But I, I also feel as though some set of Americans are really extreme about everything that they do. Um, uh, and so there are people, and, and they are encouraged by the Fitbit. I'll just quickly read to you from a piece by David Sedaris, who became obsessed with his Fitbit. He writes at one point, I look back on the days I averaged only 30,000 steps and think, honestly, how lazy can you get? When I hit 35,000 steps a day, Fitbit sent me an e-badge, and then one for 40,000 and 45,000. Now I'm up to, up to 60,000 which is 25 and a half miles. Uh, he's 57 years old at the time that he writes this. Um, I mean, Fitbit doesn't really ever tell you when you should stop. They just tell you to keep going, right? Yes. And I think the reason Fitbit does that is probably because for the bulk of the population, we're 
the N that needs physical activity and not at David Sedaris's N. And I think I remember that article. I have to give a little bit of context to that. I think he did it during the pandemic when there was nothing to do and he was spending all his time walking around New York City. <laughs> Most people are David Sedaris. But you're right, you know, physical activity, like other things, all things in moderation, right? Mm -hmm. So there is likely some level of physical activity that probably is not helpful. Now, what that level is, is unclear, but it is not what most of the population is doing. If you're someone who runs a marathon a day for a whole month, and there are some people who try to do that, I would probably say that's not the best thing to do for your health. And some research suggests that at very high and extreme levels of physical activity, we might be at increased risk of cardiac issues and cardiac arrhythmias. Um, but I'm wondering if David Sedaris walked 65,000 steps, that's probably the equivalent of, let's say, 2,000 steps a mile. So that's 30 miles. He probably spent, you can do four miles in an hour. So he'd be spending eight hours walking. And <laughs> I guess if he did that a couple of times a week, that would be fine. I'm not sure. I would like to to do that every day. Well, one thing that strikes me about the Fitbit experience and, and related experiences, I mean, I'll say this. I, I've had many Fitbits, and one of the things that I realized is that if you grew up in a family where you were always valid, validated for who you were and you were loved uncritically and unconditionally, these things don't work as well. But I'm so approval-seeking because of the way that I was brought up. I'm constantly trying to placate my Fitbit and make it happy and make it like me, uh, and so I would walk more and more. But the other way to do this is as a group. And I think you were introduced to this whole subject in a way with some kind of workplace program where everybody was going to try to do more walking. And, and that's the idea of using the human social quality to drive results. Yeah. Um, we are definitely social animals and many people like to form groups. They like to be motivated by other groups. So we know that these social platforms that encourage the forming of groups can enhance step counts. There is research showing that outpatients, when provided with a pedometer and told that, you know, you should increase your physical activity to become healthy, they do actually increase their steps, at least over the short term of the study, by something like 2,500 steps. But there's also other research in the workplace setting that indicates, at least in this one study, that if you can see other people's step counts, it doesn't necessarily encourage you to do better. So I suppose maybe it depends on the type of people. So there are studies that show that if you see other people's step counts, it makes you compete. So you increase your step counts. But there also are studies that suggest what I call the lowest common denominator. This was a study in the workplace setting where participants could see other people's step counts. And step counts actually went down in this study because I think the people who store other people's step counts, if they were high, they felt that they were given permission to do less. <laughs> Somebody else is doing my walking for me. I love that idea. All right. Well, Dr. Ayman Lee, thank you so much for your time, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an epidemiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, thank you once again for joining us today. Thank you and keep walking. Yes, I got to walk the dog. The rest of you go for a walk, too. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow.